Everybody wants to be secure. It's a good thing, right? People want to do it. It's just about balancing it out with the rest of the activities that you have. It's really about thinking how an attacker would think. What's really valuable for your business? If you ask yourself, what is it that might ruin your company tomorrow? Generally, not investing in a security component fits the bill. Once you have a mistake or a flaw in one page on the site, you've compromised the entire domain. Most of our users wasn't really into security, wasn't, it wasn't really a huge priority for them. And that hacker has to be right only once. And you have to be right all the time. Hi, I'm Guy Pojarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeats.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. So today I'm proud to have here Gergay Nemeth from Rising Stack to talk about you know, how they work in security, both in you know, the world of Trace. You know, before I kind of give too much detail about you, Gergay, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone. Thanks for the intro. My name is Gergay. I work at a company called Rising Stack, where we originally worked on customer projects. We were a professional services company, mostly working with Node.js related projects, and we introduced Node.js to quite a few big and small companies as well. In the past half a year, we started to build one of our products called Trace, which we will mention later, but that's been a nutshell. Cool. Yeah. So actually, you know, before we dig into Trace, which is super interesting by itself, maybe kind of pausing a little bit. You know, you've done a lot of work in still in the customer side and in the sort of online education with various size customers, right? Working on Node.js project. Can you talk a little bit when you talk about security? How did that manifest in those engagements? Do you was it often a, an explicit requirement or a high emphasis? You know, did you get pulled in to respond to a security problem? How how did that manifest in your work? Mm-hmm. Sadly, it usually wasn't a thing that was required uh, by our customers. It was mostly a thing that we paid a lot of attention to. Also, to answer your other question, it was only maybe once when we were pulled into some security-related issue that we had to fix as soon as possible. But it's really not. It wasn't really the generic kind of contract that we had. So most of our users wasn't really. Into security, it wasn't really a huge priority for them. Maybe they thought that it's something that comes naturally, but they didn't said that this is something we have to have to address. So, did you find you have to educate them about it to basically Definitely. tell them, you know, listen, this is going to take you know some additional amount of work, or you know, a part of delivering this functionality has to include these security controls? Yeah, definitely. We had to tell them a lot of times that. It's better to fix that before actually you heard about it in Twitter, for example. So it's really something we had to tell them a lot, and I think we successfully managed to do so. So after we started to work with clients, a lot of security issues were fixed in those applications, uh, which I'm really happy about. I guess after you did some work, right? You know, you work with some customer, you educate them. Frankly, they bring you in because of your expertise, right? So hopefully, they're in a, an open mindset to uh, to take your advice. And then you went on and you you built some security components, and you explained those to them, right? And you tell them what is it that you built. Did you find 
that was well responded to? Were people happy after the fact, or was it just pretty much disregarded as a as a mandatory kind of debt, but not not really something they were excited uh, to have? Mm-hmm. Mostly, they were very happy about it. They didn't even know that they have to address these things, so they took it as as an educational approach that where they can get better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really good experience for us. Yeah, and I think you know I, I often feel that everybody wants to be secure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not it. It's a good thing, right? People people want to do it. You know, it, it's just about balancing it out with the rest of the activities that you have, as well as just sort of sheer lack of awareness, right? What is it that you need to do to be secure? Absolutely, and uh, I think it's something even in our customer work. What we did a lot is not just actively. Paying attention to security when developing new things, but also we proactively seek already existing vulnerabilities that these applications had, and they were very severe as well. So they really appreciated when we uh, found issues that they didn't think of. Mm-hmm. Actually, can I take you even a step further back? You know, how did uh, how did your security kind of knowledge start coming into being? You know, yourself and the team. How did you how did you build that security understanding? It was something I was really curious about for a long time. And it was, I think, three years ago when I really started to, to read a lot about it, started to experiment mm-hmm. with it. And I just really felt in love with security and uh, I enjoy doing it ever since. Which, uh, which reading sources did you find most useful when you, when you started building up your understanding of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly I... Uh, I started to do it by reading articles on the website of the Open Web Application Security Project. Uh, the OWASP project. Exactly. Yeah, so they have a lot of really good uh, readings for both beginners and advanced readers as well. So I think that's something that everyone can start learning from. Also, I read a couple of books. I follow security related persons on Twitter. I feel some throw hand. I think that's it. And after that, a lot of uh, research, white I, papers. I guess for those who don't know, uh, OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project, is this pretty long-standing initiative. I think it's maybe about 15 years old, uh, and it has a lot of amazing information. The website is kind of messy. It's not necessarily the easiest to just navigate, but it has a lot of great output. You know, I guess the OWASP Top 10 was one of those I've sort of seen two or three incarnations of it right now. I think it's on its third. I'm not sure if they actually updated the uh, second. It's quite outdated now. I think the latest one is from uh, 2013. So uh, actually, if I'm correct, they release it every three years. So one should come out pretty soon. Yeah, so hopefully it does. And I think you know, originally it was. I remember the conversations I was working on WebAppSec back there, sort of AppShield, AppScan, sort of WebApp Firewall, first ones. And a lot of the conversations with the OS top ten was that it was nowhere near sufficient. Uh, but that's okay. Let's just start with ten basic things and have those handled. You know, sort of see that that people generally understand those and do those well, and then we'll move on to the next. Ten sophisticated things, and that didn't quite happen. You know, really, kind of those ten core things just multiplied, despite increased awareness. You know, to a to a decent amount, thanks to that OWASP project. Yeah, but um, also, even those ten really basic things are not addressed in most web applications. So, mm-hmm. I think really a lot of companies uh, should start with addressing at least those. 
top 10 security uh, issues. And after that, we can move ahead. Yeah, I can advance. So I guess on that note, you know, back maybe to your kind of work on, on customer work, which types of problems did you encounter most often or did you choose to focus on? Most often what we saw is people still has a lot of cross-site scripting vulnerability attacks in their applications. Actually, there are statistics that uh, around 50% of the web applications out there has cross-site scripting attack mm-hmm. vulnerabilities. So actually, it's quite in synchron uh, in what we saw. So mm-hmm. most of the customer work, uh, what we have done, and what weren't greenfield projects had some kind of uh, cross-site scripting problems. And also the other thing we saw, if we were talking about Node.js, were DDoS attacks, mostly mm-hmm. denial of service attacks using regex. So that's something that we saw as well. Yeah, these are these two were the two main issues that we saw. Cool. Yeah, and I think again, just to sort of level set here, you know, cross-site scripting, you're probably familiar with it. If not, that's a different problem. Uh, but fundamentally, it implies an attacker can trick a user into running a malicious script within the context of of a certain domain, and then that violates the same origin policy. It violates the protection the browsers give us to protect session cookies and other components from from the evil attacker, right? From the evil player. Yeah. But once you have one flaw, one of the one of the problems with many of these security vulnerabilities and cross-site scripting specifically is that once you have a mistake or a flaw in one page on the site, you've compromised the entire domain. And if an attacker can get a victim to click that link, they can expose session cookies and, and that private information, kind of break that model. I guess you mentioned though regular expression denial of service. That one is one that I find especially interesting just because it's a little bit less well known. You know, cross-site scripting, SQL injection, even the general concept of denial of service, of taking your web server down, is relatively no, at least high level, many people know those words and the very simple meaning of what they mean. But regular expressions for denial of service, those are not always well known. Do you want to explain a little bit what those are? Okay, yeah, sure. So regular expression denial of service attacks in Node.js can happen because the V8 engine uh, that interprets your code represents these regular expressions in trees. And the traversal of these trees can reach really extreme situations in some cases. So as Node.js is single-threaded, it can happen that if the Node.js process itself takes a lot of time matching the regacts that you have, then user requests like HTTP requests cannot be served in that time. So this is why it's an attack that can cause service downtimes, because actually you don't need a lot of resource to do it. You just have to have a crafted input for an API, for example. And if this request takes couple of seconds to fulfill, then in the meantime, other requests cannot be served. Right, yeah, and it's it's interesting how in the world of Node.js, the single, not single-threaded, but rather the event-based scaling, uh, that it really is the core of its strength. It's what makes it so scalable and so lightweight, and the fact that you don't need, like even in a massive production system, you really only need a small double digit if a, in a sort of big system number of threads, but then that makes it a little bit of a Single point of failure, right? If you get those threads churning in sort of for a long time on the processing of anything, of any sort of algorithm, then you can tackle those. And yeah, and Redos are just regular expressions are, you don't think of them as algorithms, but they're algorithms, right? Yeah. And because of that, as you say, right, they can take this 
non-linear amount of time, right, compared yeah. to the uh, to the size. My co-founder at Snake, actually, Danny, he did this uh, capture the flag competition in the Chaos Computer Club. Mm-hmm. Capture the flag competitions are really interesting. You know, might even do a, an entire episode on those. But this uh, this CTF had uh, won a specific Node.js challenge that had it involved a timing attack against Node.js, which was really interesting. It was again using the fact that it's a single thread and the fact that there are unsafe comparisons. So right when you have when you compare two strings, you know the natural comparison in in most platforms and specifically in Node.js, you do equal equal and it would compare them character by character. So if the first characters differ, it would fail faster. And it seems minuscule, it seems tiny, tiny, but when you run them enough times, you can actually deduce those, and then you can effectively guess a secret one character at a time and just sort of grow those. And again, it was easier to do in, in Node because timing attacks are, you know, any, any platform is susceptible to them in, in one form or another, but in the case of Node, you could actually do them out of band, you can send a request in one spot and check how long it took in another spot because it was a single thread, and you can kind of rely on that. Performance matters. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, redos or regular expression denial service are an interesting ones. So, this was super interesting. Let's maybe kind of move off the customer <laughs> work a little bit. And you know, you mentioned that you've sort of switched to to building Trace. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Trace and maybe how you handle security there? Sure. So, Trace is a Node.js and microservice monitoring solution. What makes it special is that it was built with microservices in mind as the, in the first place. Mm-hmm. So we really treat them as first-class citizens. So what makes microservice infrastructures a lot harder and more complex is the additional complexity introduced by the network itself. Because in monolithic applications, you really don't have to think about that mm-hmm. because there is little or no communication across boundaries, application boundaries. While in microservices, it can happen that you have tens of services communicating with each other and the network matters a lot. So Trace really helps debugging and monitoring these distributed systems. Mm-hmm. For now, Trace supports Node.js only. We are working on adding additional languages, but for now it's not JS. Yeah, no, definitely interesting. And you know, microservices are definitely an amazing evolution, but you can't just think that you can monitor them the exact same way that you monitor servers and have a hundred times the number of you know logical servers without having you know a, a substantially higher amount of effort to monitor them. So if you really want to to flatten or control that, then yeah, you probably want to. To rethink a little bit, how do you how do you monitor those services? So I guess when you do a monitoring system, you know clearly there's a lot of sensitive systems and sensitive data that might be flowing your way. How do you think of security in Trace? Are there some you know specific mm-hmm. highlights you you can share? Yeah, sure. So first of all, we have to make a difference between our side of the things and the customer side. So on the customer side, we have our agent. The Node.js agent, which is basically just a simple require away from actually start using it, and we are uh, have our own hosted service. So Trace is actually a software as a service product that you can start using, and we have to secure both sides. On the customer side, it's really important to make Trace as opt-in as possible. So by default, Trace won't send a lot of information about the traffic you have. For example, we don't send HTTP headers by default. We don't send query strings by default. So, for example, if you're using signatures or just access keys, then these things won't be collected. And the same applies for customer IDs if you have them. So, it's really important to know what kind of user information you can handle and what kind of user information you shouldn't. 
Yeah, uh, so and this that, is, I guess, kind of where privacy overlaps with security as well, right? Exactly. In part, you might expose secrets, and in part, you might just expose private data, which, you know, for that specific individual whose data just leaked, really not that much different than a security flaw. Yeah, exactly. So that that's on the collector side. On our infrastructure side, we try to do basically everything to protect our users' data, uh, which means the following. We are running in Google Cloud on Kubernetes, and all of our servers are running in a virtual private cloud, so uh, our services are not exposed to the public network. Mm -hmm. Also, inside the public network, we still use request signing, so even if it's in a private network, we still sign every request with private keys, which are shared only in the, between the instances that have to communicate with each other. This is using client-side certificates in HTTPS, or how do you how do you enforce the the signing? For now, we are using Joyent Signature Library. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to the SSL one. Mm -hmm. So we are using that. All our databases are in the VPC as well. And uh, what we are doing is that the single entry point to this VPC is through an nginx proxy. And only the application itself and our collector API is exposed. So that's only the two to interface that anyone from the public network can communicate with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess the the same challenges you're trying to address with Trace in terms of like microservices communication also manifest in terms of security flaws, right? It's it's the same notion that says you now have to care about the security of the communication between the different systems, not just monitor their performance Absolutely. and the likes. Yeah, and the funny thing is that Trace is monitored by Trace, so yeah, I'm always nice really to do some dog fooding. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's always fun. So building a product of your own, you know, you're you're building those components and you're doing security. Do you find yourself struggling sometimes with deciding whether to add a security component versus you know wanting to just like get something out? Um, not really. In these cases, we always speak security. Mm -hmm. We really don't want to play with our users' data, so it's really important to us that keep their information private and don't share it with anyone. Yeah. Fundamentally, if you ask yourself, what is it that might ruin your company tomorrow? Um, you know, generally, not investing in a security component fits the bill. Exactly. So, I guess if we just sort of step out a little bit, this is super interesting around kind of the activity you've had uh, with the customers. You've also done a decent amount in educating others around security and just sort of the Node ecosystem specifically. And I really like one of the pieces that you wrote at Rising Stack about uh, Node.js security checklist. Right? Sort of, I liked it because it was just sort of a nice list of these are the things you need to do. You know, We all like sometimes to be prescribed and not overthink it. I guess what made you maybe write that in the first place? And then you know, are there some highlights of that that you would want to, to repeat here or that you think can be shared? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, the trigger point for me for this article was one of our customers that uh, back in the time when we did uh, professional services, at that given customer, we had a lot of security related problems. And actually, this article started as a checklist for them. <laughs> so, what I did is that I added some extra things that I thought was really necessary for any developers that want to put a Node.js service, or not just Node.js for that case, because some items in this list are quite generic, so it can be applied for other languages as well. 
so I just extended the original list and made it available and are blocked. So anyone who's interested can learn a lot about how to secure your Node.js services. Yeah, and I think it's a really good list. It's it's always the problem that security is a is a bottomless pit, right? You can you can do well. I guess it's true for many aspects, right? For quality, for 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 performance, many of these things. You can put a ton of effort into them, but oftentimes it's just hard to see how do you make some improvement, right? How do you take one thing and improve that? And I find the checklist just to be a good way to do that, right? Here's a list of items. Are you doing all of them? No. Maybe add one of them to your next sprint. Maybe add a couple of others uh, to the sprint after that. Just sort of make it practical, embed it into your process, you know, one step at a time. Yeah, but uh, also what I think uh, it's quite important here is that this list. Can be applied for a lot of applications, and maybe at the same time for a lot of applications, it doesn't make sense. So you should always think about your use case. So do I even have to care about this aspect? Because it can happen that uh, it's simply not worth the effort. Because maybe you are protecting something that first I don't know ten dollars, so it doesn't make any sense to to put. Uh, hundreds of engineering hours into protecting something that's worth ten dollars only. So, as always, you have to think about trade-offs here. Yeah, it's all about risk reduction, and yeah. and so the question is a little bit, you know, what happens if the risk materializes? You know, I guess I used a bit of an extreme example before talking about something that would ruin your company tomorrow. But yeah, you have to balance this out. You can't just sort of live in fear. So you need to protect what's worth protecting. I guess of those, right? You deal a lot. You've got the checklist. I know you've given a bunch of talks around. Security controls and and things you could do. Do you have a favorite tool or technique that you find you know you often tell people about that might be a little surprising? Yeah, uh, I can, I can uh, mention a couple. One of the concepts that I really like is called attack trees. This is a, a methodology which helps you to describe the security of a system, meaning that you take an attacker's goal. For example, if you are thinking about uh, a safe, maybe, then uh, the goal is to open it up. And in this case, this will be the root node of an attack tree, and you create sub goals. And the sub goals will be the sub trees of this tree, which basically describe what an attacker has to do to achieve its goal. So, in this case, for example, if talking about a safe, there can be a couple of paths how uh, an attacker can achieve this. So, it's a really good technique. And it also it's not new. It's around 15 years old or something. <laughs> so you can really uh, find a lot of materials on it if you search for it. I highly recommend to check it out. Attack trees are are sort of like thinking like an attacker, figuring out exactly. how would you, if you were in whatever the, the the bad guy's shoes, you know, how would you approach it? How would you tackle it? And you know, then then try to figure out how would you now that you know that, or at least you theorize, yeah. how do you block those paths? Yeah. So if you are thinking about the attack trees, you really should think about, as you said, about how an attacker could think, or also you have to think about who are they. So uh, an attack tree won't be uh, the same for for a student who just hacks in his free time, or someone who is sponsored by some rich guys, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah, or even a government. I think yeah, when I you wanted to say that. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah, uh, so when you talk about attack trees, you know clearly attack trees is a is a logical technique, right? You can use kind of paper and pencil to to draw them, but still within that, are there some specific tools or methodologies that you use, or do you straight up just just write them down? Mm-hmm. Mostly, what we do is that there is an extended uh, list at the 
Open Web Securities website, which has a couple of hundred items. So if you want to do a complete penetration testing, that's something that uh, you can check. Also, there are a couple of automated tools that help you a lot. If you're speaking about Node.js and you want to check, for example, if you have modules with known issues, then there are already a couple of tools that you can use. For example, the Node Security Project or Sneak, uh, which are both really amazing tools. Well, I guess we've got the checklist that sort of has a whole bunch of other tools in there, right? So yeah. people should just uh, check it out. I think if you just look for, like, if you just go to the Rising Stack blog, then you can easily find it, or you can even yeah. look up. Node.js security checklist then. Oh yeah, or just Node.js security. That would be the first reason. Yeah, it would uh, it would pop up pretty quickly. It just sort of shows how how interested yeah. people are in, in actually finding that. So I guess maybe b- before we part, maybe ask you one more thing, uh, which is if you had to choose, right? You're talking to a development shop that is looking to just improve one thing about their security posture. What's your recommendation? What's the what's the one thing you would tell them? Make sure you do this first. It's a tricky question. Uh, I know my answer will be kind of a cliche, but actually, an attacker has to be right only once, and you have to be right all the time. So I think there is not a, such a thing that one thing that uh, you can do to to secure a replication, but it's really about thinking how an attacker would think, what's really uh, valuable for your business, and uh, try to defend against those attacks and try to protect those information and those uh, things that are the most important for you. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. It's it's actually something that we do very naturally when it comes to product features, when it comes to quality decisions, right? We don't just sort of spray and pray, right? We we try to to be a little smart about it, to talk about which features would impact more users, which aspects of quality are most likely to affect bugs. So it's just about being able to step back and do the same for security. And you don't have to be some top tier red team penetration testing. Like clearly you, you can be that and you would probably do it better. So there's definitely opportunities to sort of bring in those types of teams to to think about it. But I find, you know, if you just sort of stop, if you're just you know, a technical person, you think you know your system, you just stop and you try to think, how would you attack this? You don't have to have deep security expertise to to get to some good conclusions. No, you don't have to. But also, I think, generally speaking, it's not a good practice to do um, penetration testing when products are deployed into production. Mm-hmm. It's really something that should be part of of the development flow. If you are you are talking about agile or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It, but it still should be something that all developers care and think about it on a daily basis. There is a really great article on ThoughtWorks about security and how it should be part of the agile workflow. And I totally agree with that. That if you are talking about Scrum, for example, then uh, most stories should have a security acceptance criteria as well. So not just from a user's point of view, but what aspects you have to take into account from a security point of view. Yeah, makes sense. Again, kind of bringing it into your uh, into your own processes. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thanks a lot for uh, for coming, Gergay, and uh, good luck with with Trace and kind of keep educating the world on security. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at the Secure Depth. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field. 